Podcast Network. When you can stand with a clear mind while all around you are losing theirs, you must be listening to TNN, the Truth News Network. And your better man is Dan Newman. How about this? How about I just be the new man, Dan Newman? Hello, everybody, and welcome to TNN Live, a monumental day, a monumental show, probably, without question, one of the biggest things to happen in this nation in the last 50 years. It's unfolding before our very eyes. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to TNN Live, a production of Truth News Network, and we are so glad you chose to join us today. We're going to dig right into what came out overnight in just a few moments. I want to let a few people uh, get on the show because this is a monumental day, as I said. This is something that is going to change the political landscape of the nation in probably the most dramatic ways, even more so than things like Obamacare, which was monumental, um, the filibuster in the Senate, the changes that happened there, that was monumental, but Roe v. Wade being overturned? I mean, that's a a one-of-a-kind thing. And it hasn't happened yet. Let me just tease you and tell you, formally, it has not happened yet. So what else do we have on the show today? Well, we've got this um, thought police thing that Joe Biden has already established. Uh, It's not a official cabinet position. It's sub in the Homeland Security operation under Alejandro Mayorkas. We talked about it extensively yesterday. We'll get into that a little bit later in the show. And we've also got some news coming from over in Europe regarding what's happening in the gas and oil battle. The United States wants everybody in Europe to cut ties with Russia for their gas and their oil. Now, that may sound easy for a president of the United States to say, because we have a good bit of our oil supplied right here in our homeland. Not so much in Germany and other European countries. It looks like Germany's turning around and saying they're going to go along with that embargo. We'll get into that. Martha McCallum checks in. Um, We do have a Russian nuclear threat. Believe it or not, it is out there. Mayorkas is back on the calendar today, and he's going to talk about those 42 terrorists that everybody in America knew were here except him until his committee testimony during last week. But what is the 900-pound gorilla in our room? You know exactly what it is. Roe v. Wade reports are out that it is going to be overturned by the Supreme Court. I, uh, I Actually, what I did, it all stemmed from Politico broke a story late yesterday afternoon, early evening, that said a draft opinion from written by Justice Samuel Alito was leaked. Now, that's a huge thing in itself. We'll get into that in a little bit, too, the fact that it was leaked. That's never happened in American history. They sit on those those, uh, opinions and all of the documents that are produced in the U.S. Supreme Court. They sit on them. They are, I mean, sacrosanct. Nobody messes with those. Nobody leaks those. In fact, um, we, we, we heard from several people that clerked for the actual Supreme Court that said you couldn't bring your telephones, you couldn't bring a laptop 
I mean, you were locked down when you went to work in the Supreme Court. And most of the judges didn't even write their opinions, their draft opinions on a computer. That's how locked down they are. But still, with that environment going on, somebody slipped through and released it. I, in preparation for this, I wanted you to hear just the part, the specific part. It's a 98-page, a 98-page opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito. But the big one, the big kahuna, is on page four of the 98-page. And there's a lot of legalese and stuff like that. After all, we're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court. It's not something that's just surfaced and they went in and did a straw vote and said, who wants to overturn Roe v. Wade? (laughs) It doesn't happen like that. There is an amazing amount of due process that goes into it. So the second paragraph on page four, and by the way, you can get this opinion yourself. All you have to do is go online, do a search for the... Roe v. Wade leaked Supreme Court opinion, and the 98 page will pop up. It's it's in PDF format, so you can download it very easily. Here's what the fourth paragraph says, Justice Alito. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion at all. No such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly resolve, which is the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Justice Alito continued that the right of abortion doesn't fall within this category. Until the latter part of the 20th century, such a right was entirely unknown in American law. Indeed, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, three-quarters of the states made abortion a crime at all stages of pregnancy. The abortion right is also critically different from any other right than this court has held to fall within the 14th Amendment's protection of liberty. Rose defenders characterized the abortion right as similar to the rights recognized in past decisions involving matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage, but abortion is fundamentally different. As both Roe and Casey acknowledge, because it destroys what those decisions called fetal life and what the law now before us describes as an unborn human being. Interesting. You know what the killer case is that is the whole substance of what we're dealing with and talking about now? It's a case out of the state of Mississippi that made its way all up through the appeals process. And that one ends up at the court. That court is ruling on that specific law. And of course, their ruling there will apply to every other one of the 50 states. Interesting. Well, just minutes after this whole thing came out last night, when I got a, I got a, uh, a text that it was out there, I immediately wanted to find out what the media were saying about it. And normally, I would, uh, I would slip over and look at Fox News or Newsmax or somebody like that, but I said, MSNBC, Chris Hayes is on. I got to see what he had to say. 
This, you're about to hear, his opening in this, it, it was a bombshell everywhere, but especially on MSDNC, I don't think anybody there was expecting this to happen. Listen to this conversation. This will blow your mind. We have huge breaking news tonight, and I can't even believe I'm going to tell you what I'm about to tell you, but in a highly, indeed, as far as I can tell, utterly unprecedented leak from the Supreme Court, Politico has obtained what they say is an initial draft majority opinion written by Justice Alito showing the Supreme Court striking down Roe versus Wade. Quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, Alito writes. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. He writes in the document labeled as the opinion of the court. Again, I'm reading from the political article. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Now, Politico mentions this in a piece. This has never happened before, as far as I know, a draft opinion of the court leaking, A. B, this would be, if true, the most seismic court ruling in 50 years, most likely. A a earthquake in the lives of America's women, in our legal culture, in our political culture. Rin Carmon is a senior correspondent at New York Magazine, uh, where she covers gender, law, and politics, among other topics. She joins me now. Irin, we, we booked you tonight for a block that was going to be about how it seemed likely Roe was going to be overturned, that it seemed like maybe there was a little, like, failure to price in that reality in the political class, and then this literally crossed two minutes before you came on air. What is your reaction? Chris, I'm gobsmacked for the same reasons that you are in the sense that Politico has posted a 98-page opinion, and it is a draft. We do not know if it will change between now and when we expect the court to hand down its opinion in June. But nonetheless, it is a detailed, seemingly authenticated draft written by Samuel Alito that would make abortion illegal in at least half the country the day that it goes into effect. What's shocking is that we have it. What's shocking is the impact that it will have on real people's lives. Unfortunately, anybody who listened to the justices deliberate in December is not going to be shocked by this outcome. What what does seem still to be up in the air is what will Chief Justice uh, Roberts do? Because according to Politico's reporting, at least, um, his vote is still up for grabs. We heard him in December clearly say that he was interested in undoing the viability line, which is a way of overturning Roe without actually saying we are overturning Roe. What's striking about what I've been able to read from Justice Alito's opinion is that he says very clearly, we are overturning Roe. We are overturning Casey with strengthened Roe. And the impact of that would be absolutely devastating on millions of people who can become pregnant, who live in hostile jurisdictions, and it would certainly open the door to what we were originally going to talk about today, which is a proposed national ban passed by Republicans. So this would enormously change people's lives, again, if this opinion can get to a majority. Um, So we know that people often will leak deliberations by the court after the fact. We don't usually hear or get to read the details. It is still possible. I don't know how likely it is. It is still possible that between now and the end of June, there will be some haggling, some like change in the opinion. But we do know that the votes are apparently there from conference for Justice Alito to have gotten at least an initial sign-off to write a majority opinion that cleanly, unmistakably overturns Roe v. Wade. 
Yes, just to be clear, the reporting from Politico is that there are five votes for this majority opinion. So whether, you know, there's, there's, there's five votes there, then there are the three liberals, um, and, then, uh, and then Roberts in opposition. Or am I wrong on that, Erin? Um, you know, I, I think he was assigned to a majority, which means that when they took their votes on Friday after the oral argument, there would have been votes for at least this outcome. Right. But when justices then circulate the opinion, they still need to get the, uh, the other justices to fully sign on. So there right. have been times that in the process of writing, uh, justices changed their mind. Case Planned Parenthood versus Casey was actually an example of this, in which, yep. in the court, in the course of writing it, there was negotiations. So I would, I would say that the fact that somebody is leaking this is telling us that that person hopes that they can sway, perhaps Chief Justice John Roberts, to split the difference a little bit. Again, I'm, I'm totally speculating, but right. this extraordinary leak, I think, needs to be read on its own as somebody really trying to draw attention to what the court is about to do to the lives of the American people. Yes. I mean, that's part of what's so shocking about it is that it seems like a a signal flare. Right. I mean, the, a, a, a complete moment of break glass desperation. Right. 50 or yes. 50 years that has built up to this moment in which a sustained attack on reproductive rights in this country by the by the political forces that that lost in Roe and then again in Casey to gut it, to whittle it away, to try to like this, you know, sort of eviscerate it, everything but overturn that this is the moment is here. The wolf is at the door and they are going to overturn Roe. The sky has fallen. That's the message uh, of this. And again, I, whoever leaked this and I have no zero insight, I'm I'm just responding in real time to this. Um, it went to your point, And again, this is going to drive our news, I think, quite a bit uh, in, in, in the aftermath of it. But it doesn't this is the beginning of something and not the end in a million different ways, both <laughs> not that this opinion is has is law. We don't know that. But but there is a lot to wrestle with in the aftermath of this. And hopefully you can come back as we wrestle with it, Erin Carmon, Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad that we had you. You can hear the tears in her voice when Chris Hayes asked her what was going to happen. Monumental. Oh my gosh, the, the sky is falling. They didn't mention everybody that will be impacted by this decision. Probably the two most impacted are obviously the mom. But the other they didn't mention, and you will hear very little come from the left about who the other person is. There will be a million more babies that are born every year than have been because their lives won't be snuffed out. I never have understood why nobody in this conversation ever goes to the baby who is actually the subject of every abortion. We don't know if that baby feels the pain of abortion. We have a lot of biological signs that say, of course, it's a fetus until it comes out of the birth canal. That's, I guess, the way it's been described in law. But we do know babies feel pain at so many weeks into gestation. That's been proved in a laboratory. But they're not alive. They're not alive until they breathe air outside the womb. I get all of that. If this is overturning Roe v. Wade, people need to understand this is not outlawing abortion in the United States. 
It's not. All it will do will send abortion back to where it was when Roe v. Wade was determined. And where was that? As Justice Alito said, I read that just a few minutes ago, it will send it back to be determined by the people's representatives. Now, who are those representatives? Well, there are two sets of them. You've got state, state legislatures, which is where it was before, and then you have Congress. Think about that for a second. It can go back to the states, but the state legislatures are not the only people's representatives. We all vote, and we have a member of Congress in our district. In my case, in Northwest Louisiana, it's Mike Johnson, who, by the way, he is going to call in. He's going He's, he's going crazy in D.C. this morning. He let me know just, uh, I guess, about an hour before we went live that he was going to try to call from the cars he's moving from meeting to meeting. And I told him if he can, great. If he can't, we'll, we'll catch up with him tomorrow or Thursday. But nevertheless, he is my representative. You have one. These people also represent us. Nobody talks about this, but did you know Congress can pass a law? Congress can do that, legalizing abortion or following up with what appears to be an opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court that abortion will not be allowed at the federal level anymore. There are a lot of pieces of fallout in this, and we're just beginning to see what's going to happen. Probably the biggest one was the fact that this thing actually came out. To my knowledge, it's never happened in the 250-plus years of the United States Supreme Court. They cover every draft, everything that's penned, even notes from one justice to another. The U.S. Supreme Court is locked down. Things don't get out of there. But this one did. The news struck the whole world with wildfire. And authorities in Washington wasted no time, as you can imagine, because anything and everything, especially this, is going to be politicized to the heavens. They put up barricades in front of the Supreme Court yesterday. The reaction to an overturn of Roe will likely make the January 6th protest at the Capitol look like a Sunday picnic at the Supreme Court building. Pro-life and pro-abortion forces were just as quick. They gathered outside the high court, initial scenes of somber reflection didn't last very long. Just hours after reports emerged that a majority of justices had voted to strike down Roe v. Wade and the abortion protections it enshrines, scores of protesters began to assemble outside the court, flowing into the area well into the early morning hours this morning. The mood outside the court was a mix of anger, sadness, mourning, some demonstrators sitting silently in front of a long line of candles, while others formed a roving circle shouting defiant chants about the news. Later in the evening, as more people arrived, so did the chaos, which seemed to arrive about the same time as did the aggressive, black-clad, Antifa-like abortion supporters. And they began to do their chants. Abolish the court. Abolish the Senate. Abolish the court. Abolish the Senate. Wow, I'm sure those made big impressions. So expect abortion proponents on the left to exploit 
this reported overturn of Roe v. Wade. They're going to do everything they can to pressure President Biden and the Congress, Democrat-controlled Congress, to kill the filibuster and expand the Supreme Court. Two things. Make Roe v. Wade or some similar law, craft a new law that would make abortion legally nationwide, or increase the size of the Supreme Court, pack it with justices that lean far left, and then you can pass and put any law in place because you're going to control the ultimate court that's going to decide ultimately if abortion would be legal forever. That's going to be a hard one to do because they would have to get rid of the filibuster. And there are too many U.S. senators who understand the purpose of the filibuster and its use through the years and how effectively it has been used. And they're going to be hesitant to totally tear it up just for political partisan purposes, which is what this would be. So let's talk for a second. And by the way, we got a lot of people that are listening. Everybody's got an opinion. Let's hear from you. Toll free, 1-866-37-TRUTH. 1-866-378-7884. What was I going to say? What was I going to say? Oh, my goodness. There's so many moving parts to this. I, I, I just can't keep up with it. It is going to go back to the States. And I thought about this overnight. Um, I didn't get a chance last night to really dig into it. I, uh, I read the whole 98-page draft opinion. It's very, very plain written. And it has a hot, a whole lot of uh, uh, law written into it, into to this opinion. And it's pretty obvious that Justice Alito is right down the line on this. How are the other justices weighing in? We don't know. We may never know individually. But this is, it was written to be from a majority opinion, which would mean it was at least 5-4. And they test each one of these uh, justices when these samples are written. And we'll just have to wait and see. We'll just have to wait and see the outcome. But let's just assume it's going to stand. And whether or not abortion is legal goes back to the states, as it used to be. What's going to happen? I mean, it will be an inconvenience, and God forbid that someone gets pregnant has a hot date at the end of it and gets pregnant. That's not the only way unwanted pregnancies begin. I get that and I understand that. But it's not going to be as convenient. Just just go to a Planned Parenthood facility and get an abortion. You know what that's going to do? The left is going to maintain it's a horrible, horrible thing to do to these women that they're going to have to spend all kind of money and fly somewhere to one of the states that will legalize abortion to have that abortion. I think, to be quite honest with you, that's not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing because it's going to cause more people to think through before just jumping out there and running and doing it because it's the politically correct thing to do. There's a life at stake here. I don't care. I don't care who you are. There is a life there. There's a life there. That life has no voice in this whole conversation unless 
this whole thing stands, at least there'll be one more layer to cause a pregnant woman to give pause and just think about it a little bit longer before the decision is made. You will be able to get abortions. Now, granted, you may have to go to California, Washington State, uh, Oregon probably, where else? I'm just thinking out loud. Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts. It may be a little inconvenient. But there are a million reasons why this will probably stand. And it should have been handled this way a long time before now. But politics, politics, not the law, politics has done what we're living in right now, this abortion thing. Politics. And what is politics driven by? Dollars and cents. You do understand that you and I, we fund Planned Parenthood to the tune of about half a billion dollars a year. Why would we be doing that? Do you know there are only about 30 Planned Parenthood centers around the nation? And their excuse for the grant money that they get is that we need that because we're helping with women's health care, indigent people that don't have money for traditional health care, all those kinds of things. Do you know the exact same services, the exact same services that Planned Parenthood say they are the only ones that can give to the indigent people in the nation, it's already being given by tens of thousands of sinners that are part of Medicare and Medicaid already. Planned Parenthood is nothing but a financial turnstile. Project Veritas, through the years, they have, they have busted, I don't know how many, a dozen, maybe even more than that, of Planned Parenthood management people that brag about selling aborted baby parts and even whole aborted babies. Planned Parenthood is a money machine. And taxpayers are funding it, have been for years. I don't know what Planned Parenthood is going to say about this. They'll be upset, especially for those that are going to be in the states that won't legalize abortion. But I don't think that should be a consideration in any of this. If Planned Parenthood went away totally, none of the services they provide today will go away. Every bit would still be available, including, by the way, abortions. Yes, they may be a little more inconvenient, but they're not stopping women from having abortions. It just takes it out of the federal law. There, there is no word in the U.S. Constitution, abortion. It's not even included. And very weakly, Casey and Roe v. Wade was based on the 14th Amendment. But as you heard Justice Alito said when I read you that part of the draft uh, opinion, this is not part of, should not be part of, the 14th Amendment for consideration. How bad will it get? Oh, I don't know. I don't know how bad it's going to get. Meanwhile, as I said, Congressman Mike Johnson is going to try to join us. We'll interrupt any segment we're in if he calls. And uh, he'll be with us either tomorrow or the next day, I'm sure, if he can't get us today. But this is election day. 
really two big states having elections today, Ohio and Indiana. So there's a series of weekly congressional primaries. It starts today in Ohio and Indiana. The outcomes over the coming weeks will help settle or add fuel to the debate over how influential a kingmaker former President Donald Trump is. They'll also settle the matchups for races in the fall that will decide control of both the House and the Senate. Even though in some cases, Ohio's especially, district maps, the maps, congressional districts, are the subject of ongoing court battles. So here are a few things to watch for the races this week. In Ohio, the most hotly contested race is the GOP Senate primary, where the battle for the nomination to succeed retiring Senator Rob Portman has focused on who can most closely emulate Trump. In late April, Trump himself endorsed Hillbilly Elegily author J.D. Vance, who was a venture capitalist, who had billionaire Peter Thiel bankrolling a super PAC that through last week had spent almost $12 million promoting J.D. Vance. Trump's endorsement catapulted the political novice right up to the front of the pack of five Republican contenders. But that endorsement came at a price. Vance now has a target on him. And there's been some backlash from Republicans, especially the Anti-Tax Club for Growth, which is backing former state treasurer Josh Mandel, and they're filling the airwaves with ads highlighting Vance's harsh 2016 criticism of Trump. He got some booze, Vance, as well as cheers during his first onstage appearance after the Trump endorsement. An Ohio Democrat consultant, Dell Butlin, said Vance isn't necessarily beloved by the Republican base. They think he's an elitist rhino. But Trump's endorsement is probably enough to get J.D. over the hump. That's what Dell Butlin said, using the acronym for Republican in name only, Rhino. In contrast, Rob Portman's endorsement of former Ohio Republican Party Chair Jane Timken has meant virtually nothing. That the two-term GOP senator's endorsement meant so little, he said, speaks to where the Republican Party of 2022 is. The center of gravity has moved to the Jim Jordan wing. That's according to Ohio Republican Party chair. Five Republicans are running for a chance to challenge freshman's Democrat Representative Frank Morvin in Indiana's Northwest 1st District. But only two of them, Jennifer Ruth Green and Blair Milo, have raised any money. Both are veterans. Green, age 40, served in the Navy. Milo, 39, in the Air Force. Milo, by the way, is also a former mayor. Republican strategists say either would be embraced by party leaders as the nominee in a district that national Republicans are targeting in November. The GOP, they're touted their success recruiting female candidates and candidates of color. Green, who was added last week to the National Republican Congressional Committee's on-the-radar list for candidates who hit organizational and fundraising benchmarks, is black. She's appeared on the Fox News' Laura Ingram show to offer her perspective on the party's opportunity to win black voters during the midterms. Each has spent the final weeks of the campaign attacking the other's conservative credentials. And, of course, the commitment to Trump and TV ads and other media. Green, in this case, 
is the top fundraiser. 305000 She spent 206000 by April 13th. And she ended the period with about hundred grand in hand. Milo was close. Two and a quarter raised, 164000 spent, 61000 in the bank. There is another competitive House primary. It's a rematch between Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, who's a progressive firebrand, was one of Bernie Sanders' key surrogates during his presidential runs, and Representative Chantel Brown in the 11th District. Brown beat Turner by more than five percentage points in a 2021 special primary for the seat after Representative Marsha Fudge became Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in Biden's administration. But Brown received only 50.2% of the vote, and there were 13 candidates in the field. This year, it's a two-person race. Heading into the finals days, Brown has three quarters of a million dollars in her campaign account. Turner, just 143, 143,000. Outside spending is strongly running in Brown's favor with more than a million alone spent to support her by Protect Our Future Political Action Committee, a group that's funded in part by a cryptocurrency billionaire. Only 102,000 of the more than 2 million spent by outside groups went to support Turner or oppose Brown. I just gave you the complete skinny in both of those states. This is going to be a big day for both political parties. They're going to be looking and watching closely because this is going to tell the tale of what the turnout, probably, we don't know for sure, but probably is going to tell the tale of what the turnout in November is going to be when the general elections happen. Remember, these are just primaries this early. Can you believe (laughs) it's May the 3rd and we're already in a voting season? It's almost like we're in a perpetual voting process. It looks like and seems like it's not really this way, but every week, every month, there's an election happening somewhere. When you when you talk about all the races top to bottom, I mean, we start with the federal races, president and Senate and Congress. The Congress, their terms are only two years. So every member of the House of Representatives, every two years, they've either got to get out or they've got to run for re-election. And then, of course, they face new opponents typically. The Senate, that's every six years. Every four years, we have a presidential race. So we're voting a lot. And before we go to our first break, let me put this in perspective. We like to call the United States government a democracy. It's really not. Did you know that? We have democratic fundamental fundamentals. (laughs) We do. But in a true democracy... When there's an issue in the government, at any level, every citizen votes on every issue. In a true democracy, we would not have a Congress. There would be no need for a Congress. Well, how would that work, Dan? I I can tell you how it would work. We'd be having an election every two weeks. And every American would vote on every issue. Can you imagine the pandemonium that would be? Oh my gosh, we'd never get anything done. Our forefathers knew this, and they expected it to happen this way. That's why they created this as a representative republic. 
meaning the people choose the people that will actually cast the votes representing the people. At least that's the way it was supposed to be. (laughs) Now, more than ever, and I'm sad to say it, I chuckled when I said it and I shouldn't have, uh, it's who the lobbyist on most issues or many issues, who the lobbyist and what the lobbyist want to happen. The lobbyists are the ones that do what? Fund big money campaigns. Every, every person that runs for office, especially at the national level, they have a pack. And some of them have super PACs. What's the difference? A PAC, a political action committee, they get contributions. All those that give money, it's, I mean, it's registered. And those reports go to the Federal Election Commission, and they're public viewable. Anybody can see them. Super PAC, guess who created those? The United States Congress. And what's the big difference? Well, people that donate to super PACs can give more money and... Da, 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 da. They're anonymous. There's no public access to who gives and how much anybody gives to a super PAC. Unless and until, and I'm going to break by telling you this, I hate the super PAC thing. I understand the PAC thing and making it public makes it okay with me. But the super PAC thing, Remember the fundamental that we live by, even if we don't want to. The love of money is the root of all evil. And when you can buy influence by giving big campaign checks and nobody will know about it, why would we expect anything other than absolute political chaos instead of it being the representatives of the people in every vote that's cast, in every policy that's written, that should be the fundamental that controls all of it. Instead of that, more and more and more, it's what are those people that are giving me those big checks? What do they want out of this? I'm Chad Hall, and I'm here with the first ever Silverado ZR2. This is probably the first time you've seen this truck, but I've been racing a prototype version for over a year. We just inspired this pre-production truck you see behind me. Let's go see what it'll do. Gonna do the same look. Copy. It's got phenomenal power, acceleration, good ground clearance, skid protection, and you've got the Multimatic GSSV shocks. So it's just gonna be that much more of a fun truck. You wanna go a little faster? Go for it. Copy. It's an amazing truck. You're going to want to get your hands on one. Nervous? Oh, Blaze. Brings back so many good memories. Remember our road trip in 97? Our first real heart to heart. I've never seen any of your movies! Not even the one we're in together! Hey, do you remember when that stalker kidnapped us? Yes! Blaze was there. Blaze. Do you have barbecue? Or cheddar jalapeno? Ooh. Oh, remember when we stumbled into that turf war? Ah! Ah! 
Remember when you bought your first house? Those were good times. They were golden. You ready? Seth, do you? I do. And Janet, do you? That's a yes. Yeah! I love this lady! Best day of my life! I know I should quit smoking, but it's just... <sighs> my feet and hands are numb a lot. Walking to the bathroom gets me winded. <laughs> I cough all the time. Seriously? I've been dying to quit. Don't wait till you're dying to call. When your health is worse, it will be too late. 1-866-QUIT-YES. The Illinois Department of Public Health and the American Lung Association in Illinois. QuitYes.org. You're fighting back the tsunami of ignorance with Dan Newman, TNN. Have you been watching what's been coming from the Biden administration, especially in the last couple of months? You know, midterm elections really shape a presidency. Barack Obama had high hopes that he was going to be able to go to the White House and immediately make some dramatic differences in far-left legislation. Well, he rolled out a bunch of stuff, but they got slaughtered in the first midterms. In 2010, they lost 60 plus seats in the House of Representatives. What Biden's looking at in these midterms, he's not just looking at the midterms, folks. I think he and his minions, they understand they are toast come November. I think the Republican Party is going to take more seats than has ever happened in the United States House of Representatives. Don't know about the Senate, but I'm pretty sure unless there are some drastic changes in the world of economics here in the United States, and none of the economists say there's any chance of that happening. The Democrat Party is going to take a bath. Joe Biden's looking ahead, and he's trying to make the midterms more about Donald Trump, and he hopes that Elon Musk and what he's doing with Twitter is going to help him out. He's not by himself in this. His fellow Democrats, they have struggled to overcome the historical headwinds and the worrisome economic trends in the lead-up to the midterms. So, Biden's aides are scheming up something else. You need to know about this. You need to pay attention to this. They've begun to turn the campaign into a contrast with Donald Trump and Republicans. Biden and his team are hoping to spend the spring and summer months drawing big distinctions with Republicans, and one is in particular. They still plan to push forth pieces of their stalled agenda, that build back better thing. That thing's dead. They need to bury it. But they're also eagerly awaiting potentially explosive findings from the January 6th Select Committee. And they hope those discoveries are going to inflame a battle brewing within the GOP over former Trump's legacy and power. So here's what they're putting in their quiver. They know exactly what's going to come out of the January 6th committee report. They already know it. And it's going to be grandiose. It's going to be written up to make Donald Trump look like a villain and an illegal person operating. They're going to do everything they can to throw as much at the wall and pray as much of it sticks. 
That's their plan. I don't think it's going to work. Why is that? (laughs) We've had people on this show that were at January 6th. They were right in the middle of January 6th. We've seen video after video. And there are so many hidden things there, hidden by the FBI, the CIA, who had, we find out, every few weeks, more and more people dressed in street clothes, mingling among all of those protesters that were there, inciting them to move forward and do some dastardly deeds. We have video with audio of Capitol cops moving the barriers and waving people. Y'all come on into the Capitol. Joe Biden and his team, they're desperate. And they're looking at 2024. He wants to run. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine Joe Biden serving four more years? We're only a year and a half into his first term. I don't think we can survive it. I don't think he can get there. In the middle of all this, he's tried to pivot back toward domestic matters here, while at the same time tending to the war in Ukraine. He gave a hint of the upcoming strategy when he was out west recently. He blasted the GOP for falling under the control of far-right extremists. This ain't your father's Republican Party, he said. He declared it the MAGA Party now. Make America great again. That's a bad thing to do, right? Republicans now are, according to him, afraid to act correctly because they know they'll be primaried if they don't toe the line set by Trump and his acolytes. The goal of turning this election into a contrast it could be pretty straightforward. But the execution, that's that's another thing. Previous attempts to reframe the conversation have just failed. As this White House has been overtaken by a bunch of outside forces, leaving this president unable to stay on message, and Democrats frustrated with a lack of direction coming from the West Wing. A number of outside groups and Democrat advisors have been baffled by a lack of coordination on key issues. Four Democrats close to the White House have said that officials there don't frequently provide surrogate talking points, which is a key component for any political operation to stay on message. they got to coordinate it, and that's not happening. One of those people said the political office in the White House does stuff, but they do it. It's because there is a thing. There's not a standing meeting. This is more driven by if there's something to defend or sell on any given day. That's what they're going to do. The White House insisted that surrogate talking points are sent almost daily. But once again, the lack of coordination has left these outside officials really frustrated. In particular, Democrats felt empty-handed when they were asked to defend the Biden administration's position on voting rights the president's legislative agenda, and his decision to rescind Title 42, which you know is the Trump-era directive that allows kicking out those migrants seeking asylum based on health reasons. There's also been frustration in the White House and among those that are in these outside groups about the lack of cover and political push from the Democrat National Committee. The move by Cedric Richmond, a guy from Louisiana, 
was a state legislator here, and he got hired in the Biden administration. He was Biden's number one assistant until he got booted two weeks ago. He's at a lower place now. Cedric Richmond leaves the administration, becomes a senior advisor to the DNC. That was interpreted as a sign by many as an effort by the White House to get more control over the party. So as they're in the White House seeking to turn the election into a a contrast with Republicans, they've run into a trio of stubborn realities. Biden's poll numbers suck. Inflation is monumentally high, and Democrats' margins in Congress are about as slim as they could be. Now, this, this one, it just baffles me. Biden is still getting high marks from several foreign policy experts and even some Republicans, specifically for the way he's handled the Ukraine thing, helping rally Europe to get Putin's invasion at bay. But the conflict has put a strain on our energy cost, only adding to inflation that has soared. We're at a 40-year high, and it's going higher. We got more about that on the show today. Skyrocketing consumer prices per polling looms as the decisive issue for November's elections. It goes back to James Carville when Bill Clinton was running for re-election right in the middle of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Democrats were crying, oh no, he's messed around with this teenage girl. That's going to kill us in the election, in the re-election. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Carville very famously said, it's the money, stupid. It's the money. People, Americans, vote primarily on their wallets and their purses and what's in it and also what's not in it. Joe Biden and House Democrats, they are out of touch. They have shredded any and all credibility on this issue when they embarrassingly claimed that inflation is transitory. You remember that? And now condescendingly attempt to convince the American people to blame Vladimir Putin for what really is Bidenflation. But the White House, they're not quitting. They've renewed hope it can change the conversation. His aides have been really excited to watch growing division within the GOP. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. He has fended off bitterness within the ranks after several revelations about his critical words for Trump and right-wing caucus members after the January 6th Capitol riot. Additionally, there's growing hope that the House committee investigating the insurrection that day may come up with some damaging findings against Trump and other key Republicans. By the way, the committee plans to begin holding primetime hearings this June. That's going to be. I mean, I'm going to grab popcorn, pull my chair up and watch that. That's going to be a circus. So the consensus among Biden aides about Trump's possible return, it could cut both ways. While the former prez would eat up an extraordinary amount of political oxygen, it's also possible he would push the big lie or feud with fellow Republicans and damage the GOP's otherwise strong chances of regaining at least one of the two houses of Congress. 
The more this election becomes about Trump, the better the Democrats' chances become. Many in Biden's orbit believe that. Some Dems feel the White House has been too reactive to crises, unwilling to go on the offense. And Joe Biden's never been, in politics, one of those big go-after-somebody, go-after-a-political opponent. Oh, he'll get up and pontificate from time to time. But he's never really just issued and maintained an assault on his political foes. He's been reluctant to bash Republicans very often, still believing bipartisan deals can be made. Mr. Biden, I'm going to answer that the way you would. There's no willingness for bipartisanship in Congress. It ain't going to happen. You're not going to bring any Republicans over to your side and any kind of sufficient number to get any of your hardcore left agenda policies passed. It ain't going to happen. He grew up in the Senate where there was some bipartisanship and he was hoping he could bring that same approach to the White House. But the unfortunate reality, this is not a bipartisan world anymore. The only way we're going to be able to make any case as Democrats and sell their agenda, they got to draw contrast with Republicans and show the country how awful Republicans are. That's a tall order right now. Granted, they may be evil. I mean, come on now. We're talking about people that serve in the government. There's a lot of evil to go around there. The White House also cheered up a bit when they got a development across the Atlantic that strong campaign contrast could compel voters to reward incumbent parties, even if they're not enamored with the job those parties are doing. We're talking, of course, about French President Emmanuel Macron's re-election over the far-right candidate Marie Le Pen. The White House will aim to be more directly in placing the Republican Party in Trump's shadow. Macron's surprisingly comfortable victory was not just held vital to keeping Europe intact, but it also was treated as positive reinforcement for Biden's own domestic future. That's according to two senior officials in the Biden administration. And let me just say this. There ain't a voter on the planet that will vote for or vote against Joe Biden or anybody based on what happened to Emmanuel Macron in in Europe, in France. It isn't going to happen. It's going to be about what's going on every day. How much are you paying when you go fill up your car? How much more are you paying there? How much more are you paying for groceries? How many of you, when you go to the grocery store, when you used to grab four or five or even six or eight sirloin or T-bone steaks, you're going and getting ground ground meat instead and doing hamburgers. It's happening to hundreds of thousands, millions of Americans. Governing is about competing values and policy agendas. Republicans in Congress, they tell us they're proposing tax hikes on middle-class families. They're not, but they're trying to find a place where they can get an arrow and put another one in their quiver. Republicans raising taxes anytime soon. 
ain't smart, Biden folks. This is going to be an interesting midterm coming up. And between now and then, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Joe, today, well, his approval rating is in the double-digit negatives. A majority, 52% of Americans disapprove. Only 42% approve of the job he's doing. He's been unable to recover the souring ratings throughout his presidency as we Americans continue to face all these issues. And we haven't even talked about mass illegal immigration that looks like it's even going to go crazier and higher under this president's watch. On inflation specifically, his approval is even worse. A net rating of minus 40%. According to this latest poll, 68% disapprove of the way he's handling inflation. Only 28% approve. Inflation remains a top issue among Americans. 50% said they're concerned about it. Another 44 say they are upset. This doesn't bode well for Democrats. As the poll also found, Republicans have an advantage over Democrats on handling inflation. 50% to Democrats, 31. Remember what James Carville said. It's about the money, stupid. It's about the money. Biden's ratings fail to offer Democrats any more encouragement heading into the midterms. While Biden's standing just ahead of the November election remains to be seen, it's currently a lot like Trump's going back to his first midterm, 40%. His party lost 40 seats. It's worse than Barack's approval in October of 2010, 50%, and he lost 63 seats in the House. Bill Clinton in 1994, approval rating 48%, he lost 54 seats in the House in his first midterm. Reagan's in 92, uh, excuse me, 1982, 49% positive, loses 26 seats in the House. The exception to all this is what most people think probably the worst president in American history. That was Jimmy Carter. He lost fewer seats, but he still lost 15 in his first midterm with 49% approval. Democrats are following the lead of this president. They're refusing to take responsibility for any of these looming issues ahead of the midterms. That's what the American people are turned off about. Nancy Pelosi put this tactic on full display last week when she told one reporter she thinks Americans blame oil and gas companies, not Democrats in their policies, for high gas prices in America. The day Joe Biden was elected president, I paid $1.65 for a gallon of gas. The day he took his oath of office, I paid right at $3 a gallon. Now, what changed between November of 2020 and January 20th of 2021? The only thing that changed, Joe Biden is president. Donald Trump was president on election day. Now, did Joe mess it up that quickly? Well, here's the thing. He ran on specific things that were so far left, Americans in large, there was no way it could be reconciled in their thinking. And so when he, when the election results came out and 
They confirmed that he won the election. He was going to be the president. Americans started looking at it saying, oh my gosh. And many of them just ran for the hills, pulled their money out of all kinds of entities and just wanted to have cash because everybody knew as soon as he hit the White House as president, spending was going to go through the roof, inflation and borrowing power was going to go through the roof. All kinds of jobs were going to be eliminated. I mean, his first day, he scorched a bunch of jobs when he canceled the XL pipeline. Is there any hope for his party? Right now, folks, I think you'll agree it's pretty bleak. Whether holding down the fort or bouncing back to school, childhood is always in session. So keep feeding us right with sun-made snacks, just like when you were a kid. Remember their naturally sweet raisins? Yep, still delicious. And so are Sunmate's other snacks, like creamy yogurt-covered raisins, sour raisin snacks that taste like sour candy with no added sugar, and Sunmate's new s'mores and birthday cake bites. All delicious, all made with whole fruit. Sunmade snacks. Holidays abroad. Can we, can't we? But then we thought, should we? Staycation! We could share a yurt. Please, no. Luckily, we've picked British Airways holidays. Small deposit and can change if we need to. Decision made. Moonlight skinny dipping. <laughs> we've booked St. Lucia. Two weeks. Did you? Why didn't we? Ah, clever you. British Airways holidays. At all protected. I love going all natural. It just makes me feel better. Nothing between me and my 100% all-natural, juicy, grass-fed beef. Introducing the all-natural burger, the first ever in fast food. With no antibiotics, no added hormones, and no steroids. Only at Carl's Jr. So you guys grew up together? Yeah, since third grade. What are you looking at? Snickers won't satisfy me. Maybe that's why I'm not a Snickers fan. You know what my favorite candy bar is? I love coconut. I've always loved coconut. When I was a kid, I got in trouble numerous times. My mother would keep the, you know, the bags of uh, shredded coconut in the cabinet. I'd go get the bag out and sit down at the table and eat a bunch, eat a bunch of coconut. And I love everything that has coconut in it. I mean everything. It makes everything better, right? Almond Joy. I love almonds. I love milk chocolate. Now, Mounds Bars, they have chocolate, almonds, but they have dark chocolate. 
and of course they both have coconut. Give me an almond joy and I'm a happy boy. You got that for free. I'm sure that changed your life. (laughs) Do you know who Jonathan Turley is? I like Jonathan Turley. He is a constitutional expert, and it's very interesting. He is not conservative at all. He's he's a registered Democrat. He voted for Hillary Clinton. He voted for Joe Biden. But he is straight down the middle when it comes to legal matters. He reacted to Homeland Security's appointment of Nina Jankowicz to run its so-called Disinformation Governance Board. And I, I, I looked at this when, uh, when Turley, when he first came out with it, because I was interested to see what he had to say about it, being a constitutional attorney. And he, he was very pointed. He said the Biden administration tabbing one of the most outspoken critics of free speech to police what it deemed disinformation was his word, telling. <laughs> I hate that word, telling. In other words, you got exactly what's going on. He argued that Biden was arguably the most anti-free speech president since John Adams. I think it's telling, he said, that the Biden administration went out, recruited one of the most outspoken critics of free speech. My expectation is that they are going to now try to minimize this group, he added. But what is really important about this is that she is pitch perfect for the Biden administration. I mean, President Biden, I've said before, this is Turley talking. Biden is arguably the most anti-free speech president since John Adams. I mean, the record of this administration is chilling. They went out and found this individual who has been a huge advocate for corporate and public censorship, has a distinctly anti-free speech view, And that's what's so troubling when the secretary says she has a long background here. Well, it's the wrong background. It's like saying a book burner has a background in literacy. Yeah, he works with books. But that's not the background (laughs) that you're looking for. Maybe it is the background the Biden administration is looking for. But I'm going to tell you what. I don't know this woman. Haven't met this woman. I knew nothing about her until her name came up when this board was created and Joe Biden was looking for somebody to run it. Never heard about her. But I've seen several things. I've seen her speak. I've seen some of her older uh, conversations she had in other government capacities. To me, folks, it's, it's one thing. She's a loon. I don't think she has everything together. I think she is hardcore, without question, hardcore left. All of her ideals, all of her ideology is hard left. And she makes no bones about it. She doesn't even try to hide it. Wow. So what other things are going on here? We mentioned inflation earlier. Stuart Varney, my buddy at Fox News, Fox Business, I like Stewart a lot. And he weighed in with about 90 seconds of wisdom regarding inflation. I thought it was perfect to share with you. One of the most important inflation indicators is the cost of a tank full of diesel. It's an indicator that's flashing a danger signal. The national average is now at a record high, $5.32 a gallon. That's up roughly 40% from a year ago. 
That is serious inflation, and it points to even worse inflation coming this summer. Diesel is used by farmers, truckers, construction workers. It's a baseline cost for any enterprise. It's a cost that is passed along. You may not be buying diesel yourself, but you will be paying for it. The Biden team is just thrashing around. They released oil from the strategic reserve. They promised more federal land for drilling. And as usual, they tried to pin the blame on oil companies or gas stations or Putin. They're desperate. The president is oh, way underwater on the issue of inflation. Look at this. An ABC Washington Post poll shows 94% concerned or upset by inflation. Imagine how bad it will be if diesel brings us double-digit inflation this summer. Don't be surprised if Bernie Sanders, the socialist, demands price controls. How many of the Beltway crowd have ever filled up a tractor or a backhoe with $5 diesel? The elites wouldn't be caught dead at a truck stop. They're out of touch. My prediction? $6 diesel, 10% inflation, and 6% mortgages by July the 4th. Not good. Not good. $5 plus per gallon for diesel. Uh, let me put that in personal perspective for you. When we had our two arena football teams, first in Bossier City, Louisiana, Secondly, in New Orleans, the New Orleans voodoo, uh, we spent a lot of time, Marianne and I, going with the teams to games. Now, when you're in ownership, you don't just go down for the game. You go down and get involved in the preparations, all that kind of stuff. And we enjoyed doing that. We had, through those years, we had three different Prevost motor coaches, Prevost buses that are converted to be a motor coach. Very nice way to travel. Uh, it's almost like a really nice uh, hotel suite. You you have, you have all your own stuff on there, clothes, dishes, your food, uh, all the amenities. It's a great way to travel. But let me just tell you this. You just heard what Stuart Varney said. There's a 230-gallon diesel tank on Prevost buses. You do the math. 230 gallons. Go fill it up. Well, you're good for 1,200 miles driving. But guess what you're going to pay for that? $1,219 to fill up a bus. <laughs> and in the commercial industry, in life, general, and when I say commercial industry, I'm talking about grocery stores, clothing stores. I'm talking about restaurants where you eat. Everything gets transported. How do they get transported? Well, people say, hey, there's a lot of moving around now on trains and stuff like that. Well, what are those engines, those locomotives, what do they have to have? Diesel. And diesel goes up. Well, there's a lot of transportation internationally. You know, there's more and more by boats. Okay, what do those ships run on? Diesel. FedEx, you, you, you transfer packages, you send packages, you get packages all the time. Well, they're, they're in airplanes. They're not in tractor-trailer trucks. Planes don't burn diesel. <laughs> no, it's worse. They burn jet fuel, which is like four fifty a gallon, $5 a gallon. None of these transportation companies, none of these restaurants, none of these places where you go and buy gas, buy groceries, None of them can afford to eat the additional cost between diesel back when we were traveling a lot, 
and had one of those three buses, we were paying three fifty, sometimes three twenty-five a gallon. In fact, I remember one time we went to the valley down in South Texas. We played in Hidalgo, right on the border. We found a station there that had diesel for two ninety-nine a gallon, which is really inexpensive. And I didn't care how much I had burned, how much I had left in the tank. I was going to take advantage of two ninety-nine a gallon. All of those extra expenses are passed on to you and me. There are no exceptions. There can't be. Those people got to stay in business. And they're going to do whatever is necessary within reason to stay in business unless they throw in the towel and just say, you know, we've had enough. I don't need any more of this. And just go to the house. More and more of that is happening now through Our pandemic, working from home became a really nice option, and more and more people are doing it. Uh, I just heard one national, international company, they announced last week that their employees are going to continue to and be encouraged to work virtually. Who was that? I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, I can't remember, but it, it, it surprised me, but... Most of what they do is telephone work, telephone and computer work. Novel idea. You could do that from your house. If you're more effective at working, and I got to be honest with you, a bunch of companies found out that employees, not all, but a lot of employees, probably more than half, they work better. You get better results and more good results working virtually than when they're forced to come into an office every day. This has changed the whole structure of our economy. Not everything. What wasn't changed by the pandemic, Joe Biden is doing it by inflation, right? Things are different now. And fortunately, we live in a democratic republic nation, and we can change with the times. We can afford to be flexible. Not every country And not every people in every country can react and change like that. So we're blessed here for a lot of reasons. That's one of them that I never thought about until this whole mess started. And it makes sense. So we opened the show and told you about, it looks like this oil embargo in Europe against Russian oil. They haven't mentioned gas yet, but Russian oil, it looks like one of the uh, players that nobody thought was going to come along is coming along, and that's Germany. The European Union stepping closer to a ban on Russian oil this morning. Germany's finance minister just saying that an immediate Russian oil embargo is possible. If you check out prices this morning, let's take a look. You're going to see that right now WTI is down by about two and three quarters percent, down almost uh, three bucks. 101.77 still. Uh, joining us right now is Helene McCroft, RBC Capital Markets, global head of commodity strategy. And this is definitely ratcheting things up in this uh, back and forth war about what's going to happen with Russian oil, but maybe more importantly, natural gas. They didn't say anything about a ban on natural gas. And, and that's what's the most important part, Halima. That's what G- Germany is completely bound by. So they can set up the rhetoric here and maybe threaten to do this with the idea that that would definitely hurt Russia, how much they can take in. Uh, But they are definitely running a closer risk to having a problem with what happens with natural gas. It's interesting that that's left out here. 
Absolutely, they're leaving natural gas out. But if you look at Russia, they have essentially doubled their energy revenue since the start of this crisis. So there is this real urgency to try to close down at least some of the revenue that Russia is getting in from oil and gas exports into Europe. But one of the big questions we're looking at now is, is a 27-member bloc actually united on this? Hungary was out this morning essentially saying that they would oppose any ban on Russian oil imports. They are uniquely dependent on Russia. Slovakia has also expressed concerns about this. So the question is, are we going to get exemptions from countries for countries like Hungary, Slovakia? When would they actually phase in an import ban? I mean, there's some discussion that they would do it at end of year. Germany said they might move it up. But there isn't a lot of clarity right now on what this actual import ban would look like. Russia sends about 2.2 million barrels a day to Europe. There are questions of, would India start taking more of those barrels? We've seen India back up the truck with a $30 discount for Russian euros. India has surged their imports. And so the question is, what's the ultimate effectiveness going to be if it's a phased ban if certain countries are exempted. So that's what we actually need to see is clarity on what the European measures will actually look like. Halima, explain to me why crude oil is down by 2.7 percent on this news. You would think if you're talking about a potential embargo on Russian oil from Europe, that would mean fewer barrels on the market. Does this just mean the market doesn't believe it at this point? I mean, I think there's still other issues hanging over the market. Obviously, the concern about China with COVID lockdowns. But I do think the market is literally looking to see what the actual clarity on the EU policy is going to be. Because, again, this morning we had you know, several members, you know, led by Hungary, out there saying they would oppose an EU ban. So the question is, what does it look like if you don't have full unity on this issue? Do you have carve-outs? What's the timing? There's some reports that Italy would like just a price cap as opposed to a ban. A price cap would essentially say to Russia, we're going to give you a major haircut in terms of how much oil you can, the price of oil, but we're still going to take your oil. So that's the problem. We simply don't know what the details of this ban would look like. And the other wild part, though, is how would Russia actually respond to this? Last week, we saw cutoffs to two countries for natural gas. Would they potentially start weaponizing more energy supplies if Europe moved forward with such a ban? The end of that is the critical piece to me. Yeah, we want to starve the Soviet Union, which is no longer the Soviet Union. It's now just Russia. But uh, Vladimir Putin, he wants to take it back to the old Soviet Union. You want to starve them out of there. But of late, Remember, the 900-pound gorilla in the room, every time there's a conversation about Ukraine and Russia and Vladimir Putin, everybody is scared to death of the nuclear threat. So if everybody in Europe, every country in Europe, they just sent a note to Vladimir Putin and said, we're not going to buy any gas, we're not going to buy any oil from you anymore. How do you think he would respond? I don't think he's going to go nuclear, but of course that's the fear in every leader of every nation in Europe and not just there around the world. I mean, a nuclear holocaust, Russia has more nukes than any other country, including us, thousands of nuclear warheads. They could destroy every country on the planet, or at least they could initiate that kind of action. Nobody wants to be his bullseye. Nobody does because he is literally a despot. He's a dictator. They can call him president, whatever. They, it doesn't change a thing. 
He is a totalitarian leader, which means he's the guy. And what he thinks, what he feels, what he says, and what he does, more importantly, what he tells anybody else to do, those are the only things that matter in this conversation. So I identify with those European nations that are hesitant to cut ties with Russia for their energy, at least right now. Now, if we had a Donald Trump in office, what would have happened? Well, I could tell you what would have happened. He would have been given an ultimatum at the very beginning. Donald Trump would have initiated a red line concept with Vladimir Putin. He would also make it clear that the United States is willing to work with him in a lot of things as long as he comes along. Let me tell you, here's one reason why Donald Trump gets along with world leaders that none of the previous American presidents even like to talk to. They're intimidated by Donald Trump. None of them were intimidated by uh, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton. None of them were intimidated by those people. But in Donald Trump, they saw real leadership. They saw a dynamic guy. Yeah, we hated his messaging. Many of us prayed that he would change his messaging, not the message, but the way he delivers the message. The profanity, it turns off a lot of people. But there are a lot of people out there, obviously, that those things don't turn off. And those people, to be quite honestly, for years have been marginalized, and they constitute a huge segment of the American population. Those people want real leaders, especially one real leader in the Oval Office. That is a real leader that's not somebody's puppet. George W. Bush. I'm not talking to you about George W. Bush. I was a hardcore Bush fan. I loved the concept. I loved the fact that he was from Texas, that he was a true red, white, and blue Republican. I liked all that. But there began to be some things that cropped up in his government that began to trouble me. Things just didn't add up. There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. How many people during the Bush administration, how many people died? Because we were over there supposedly looking for weapons of mass destruction. There were none. I don't think there ever were any. But we spent trillions of U.S. taxpayer dollars, and we cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, not just specifically in warfare, but in the processes in Iraq that our actions initiated, it divided the country right down the middle. They were killing each other. I don't think we should have done that. I think he did it specifically because his father wanted to finish the deal with Iraq when he invaded Iraq over the Kuwait invasion by Iraq. 
I think it was all based on that. You put that on the fabric of what this nation is supposed to be about. None of that fits. Everybody just thought the reason those Twin Towers fell on 9-11 back in 2001. Those those things didn't, didn't just happen. Those people didn't go through all the angst that they did to be able to get to the controls on those jets for nothing. You can talk all you want to about their reasoning and how vile they were in killing all those people, and they were. But they weren't doing it unincited. They had reasons, and a lot of the reasons had to do with what the United States had been doing to people in those Muslim countries over there. Say what you will. What we as Americans and what our governments have done through the decades hasn't always been good. We've had leaders that did not always have the best for all Americans at heart when they served. And I'm not talking about people making honest mistakes. I'm talking about people doing really bad things in the name of freedom and justice for all, liberty and justice for all. And bubbling underneath that was something for them or something for somebody else, even when that meant payback, which I think was a lot of the reasoning for the Iraq war under George W. Bush. He had to get Saddam Hussein. He had to get him. Why? Because his dad couldn't get him. What are you doing? Should we pick him up? He has Bud Light. He has an axe. But he has Bud Light. And an axe. I'm sure there's a reason for it. Hey, buddy. What's with the axe? It's a bottle opener. Hop in. Refreshingly smooth Bud Light. Always worth it. Look, here's Bud Light. And a chainsaw. People think unusual circumstances means complicated taxes. But for a TurboTax Live expert like me, it just makes things interesting. So, give us everything you've got. What if I'm a professional gamer with a ton of expenses? If they help drive views, let's talk deductions. What if I'm in a state with no income tax, but my survival videos are viewed in 38 countries? I can help. And if this is a business dinner, save those jerky receipts. An interesting life can mean an even greater refund. You do your thing. We've got your taxes. Intuit TurboTax Live. Introducing the all-new Infiniti QX60. Take on life in style. Taking the time to speak the truth, no matter the cost. Dan Newman, TNN, The Truth News Network. 
Have you actually paid attention to that ad, that, that one you just heard, The Butchering of Rhapsody in Blue, by that, I guess it was children playing it. It's an infinity ad, and the structure is mom of one of those kids is outside, and she's got the window down listening to her child in that orchestra just rip Rhapsody in Blue to pieces, and the whole gist of it was she could roll the wind up and not hear it. <laughs> Every time I see that commercial, I look for the window that I can roll up. I, uh, I'm a musician, and that just kills my ear, those kids. How did they manufacture that? Did they really get kids and just throw them out there and get them to play Rhapsody in Blue? I don't know. Well, let's just move on with how about some more hypocrisy. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, his, um, his spokesperson, Christina Pushaw, hammered Disney yesterday saying that the politically woke company owns an island in the Bahamas. How cool is that? They own, Disney does, their very own island in the Bahamas. But here's what Pushaw was calling out. There's no same-sex marriage. There are no civil unions under the law. And people are not allowed to change gender at the Disney Island or anywhere in the Bahamas. LGBT rights in the Bahamas. No legal protections from discrimination or harassment. No same-sex marriage or civil unions under the law, which states a Bahamian marriage is composed of only a man and a woman. People are not allowed to change gender there. Disney does, in fact, own the island of Castaway Cay in the Bahamas. The island is reserved for Disney Cruise Line guests on Bahamian and Caribbean cruises. Meanwhile, gay marriage and the ability to legally change one's gender is illegal in the Bahamas. Pushaw's tweet arrives in the middle of Disney attacking Florida's anti-grooming laws for kids, such as a bill Governor DeSantis recently signed into law, which restricts the teaching of sexuality and transgender in them to children in kindergarten through third grade. Now, the left they don't even talk about the substance of the law. They don't even talk about it. They call it don't say gay law. It has nothing to do with that. Again, what it does, it restricts the teaching of sexuality and transgenderism to children in kindergarten through third grade. It's nothing like what they are intimating the left. It's nothing like what's in the bill. And this is not Disney's first apparent display of hypocrisy. While they express outrage over parents' rights in education, the Walt Disney Company is reportedly expanding its business into anti-gay countries where homosexuality is illegal and it results in punishment, sometimes death, like what countries, Dan? Algeria, Egypt, Libya, Morocco, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, Yemen, and the territory of Palestine. Moreover, the company continues to do business in China, despite Beijing's continued genocide of minorities in Xinjiang and Tibet. 
Disney continues to work to release its movies in the Chinese market and still operates theme parks in Shanghai and Hong Kong. Do we smell a little bit of hypocrisy among the Disney operations, West Coast and East Coast? You stop, you go to you go to places like Egypt and Libya, Morocco, Oman. I've been to Oman. I haven't been to Egypt or Libya. Oman, it's a strange place. I mean, it is hardcore Muslim. And when you when you land there, I mean you land, it's it's a very contemporary city. Musket is where I landed. It was making a connection for a flight from Europe to Malaysia and back. Um, But it's a gorgeous city, and when you fly into it, you're just over the desert, and all of a sudden, bam, you see this oasis. You fly in, it was really hot. They don't have the arms that come out, you know, the walkways that come out and grab the door of the plane, and you just walk into the terminal. You have to get on the tarmac, and it was really hot. But once inside, it was really, really nice. But what you see on television about the way Muslim countries, men, women, all of that is absolutely factual. I can't imagine Disney going there and pushing any of their hard left sexual ideology. I mean, there'd be people killed over it over there. In fact, the government would get involved. But yet over here, right now it's politically correct, or at least they say it is, to promote these ideological things that uh, do not align with the majority of the, the American people. What else is happening? Gosh, we're in our last half hour. I don't want to miss anything. We're still waiting if you just joined us. Mike Johnson reached out to me uh, when this thing came out about the Supreme Court, when that opinion, draft opinion was released. I immediately got on the phone. I called him and asked him if he could be with us today live because he is a constitutional attorney. He has represented the state of Louisiana at the U.S. Supreme Court in an abortion case, a really big one. So he's very intimate with all of the workings of how this process works. And he's going to come aboard. We still have 25 minutes for him. Uh, He's in meetings. He said he would even try to call from a car on his way between meetings, but we wanted to talk about that with him. Uh, If we don't get him today, he'll be with us either tomorrow or the next day. But he wants to weigh in and talk about it. These are things that are very, very important to everybody in the United States. Substantively, we have lost our way in having meaningful relations, meaningful conversations in our relations with people, we just automatically take sides immediately in every kind of meeting, every kind of conversation. Everybody just, they get with like-minded people. They don't want to communicate with others. We've lost that ability in the nation, and that is a determinant of whether or not any nation can be successful. And I, I liken back to what happened in World War II, you remember? I doubt if you were around. I wasn't around. But I remember the stories. I hear them now. My father was in 
the Pacific. My wife has an aunt that passed away a couple of years ago, uh, but she was living in Spring Hill, Louisiana, and she left her family and left Spring Hill. She moved to Fort Worth, Texas, and she went to work in a factory building airplanes for the military, for the Air Force. And the stories that my dad told me and Marianne's aunt told her around the nation, everybody in the United States, everybody, almost without exception, was just rooted into everything that was positive for the nation, what the leaders told us. Everybody was working towards getting the military in both places that we were fighting a world war, in Europe and in the Pacific Ocean. You think about that. A nation, we were not at that time, we were not the most powerful nation on the planet. That developed over years after World War II. We were a great nation at the time. But Japan looked at what we were doing in Europe and they looked at us as a soft target. Let's just go walk in there and take them over because they've got all this going on in Europe. We could It'd be a cakewalk for us to just go in and take the nation. The reason that didn't happen, the reason the U.S. didn't lose in Europe, the reason the U.S. didn't lose in the Pacific was because the American people rose up in unity together against the common foes of the nation, not in petty partisan political stuff like transgenderism, gay marriage. These are all parts, there's no doubt about it, parts of a society. But these do not represent and should not be put up as being the fundamentals of who a nation is and who its people are. And the left now, that's exactly what they're trying to do. Divide the nation rather than find common cause. We're always going to have differences with people we live with. We always have, we always will. But a successful nation operates not based on differences, but finding commonality, things within the society that people can agree on that are important to driving towards the success of every part of that society. We're losing that. We're losing a whole generation of Americans, probably three generations behind mine. I don't know what you call them after the X's. I think maybe it's the Z's. We're losing them because they're being inundated with false doctrine about government, about society, about biology, about education, about science, about everything, because the left discovered that if they take that generation, they will be able to take over and control the entire American government and turn it into whatever is their whim at that particular time. You know what? They may be right. They may be able to do that. I'm just praying we Americans will stand up and say, not on our watch. No way on our watch. Let's go to Homeland Security stuff. Alejandro Mayorkas testifying last week. He was asked by one member of one of those committees, a Republican, about the terrorists, the terrorists that have been discovered on terrorist watch list, 
coming across the southern border. And he basically said, I don't know where they are. Now think about that. People come in, they're accosted. They run them through whatever database there is. 42 terrorists that were coming into the United States that were identified. Obviously, they were stopped. We thought they weren't stopped. We just found out they were here and that they were terrorists. Where, oh, where are they? Well, Mayorkas, he answered, I don't know where they are. Now, think about that. The guy that's supposed to know, first of all, who is a terrorist and make sure they don't get in, he didn't do that. And when he found out there were 42 that got in, he didn't even think about where are they. Now, you put that in the perspective of American public safety. We're paying this guy a large amount of money. I bet you he makes $150,000. We're paying him to secure the homeland. And yet we find out 42 terrorists are living amongst us. Well, are they next door to me? Are they across town? Of course, your first thought is, ah, they're nowhere around me. Those are the people that would want to be in a place where everybody said, oh, those people aren't around me. I promise you terrorists are here not to vacation. They're here for something explicit. And I don't think in this case it's for good things. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas testifying last week that he did not know where 42 migrants on the terror watch list were. Watch this. Have any of the 42 illegal migrants on the terrorist watch list or no-fly list encountered on our southwest border been released into the United States? I do not know the answer to your question. You do not, do not know whether they have been released or not into the country. Uh, That's your testimony. Now Mayorkas admits he does know where these 42 migrants are. He just didn't want to, quote, misspeak during the hearing. Well, because he didn't know then, but then he looked it up, made some calls, found out. And now he knows, but he won't say anything more than that. Joining me now, former U.S. Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker. Matt, good to see you. Good morning, uh, it's just Good to see you. Mind-boggling. It's very frustrating. And, you know, he um, not only did he have this testimony where he made several extraordinary statements, but then yesterday he was on the Sunday shows uh, and at least twice suggested that, that the DHS and the Border Patrol have operational control of our southern border. And we know, based on just what we see with our own eyes, that's not true. Right. Effectively managing the border is what he said last week. Does he not understand the grave uh, problems that the open border are causing or the loss of life? Operation Lone Star seized more than 300 million lethal doses of fentanyl at the southern border. Texas Governor Abbott and the state's Department of Public Safety worked together to secure this border. And let's just add in all of the doses that do not get seized that wind up killing tens of thousands of Americans. Yeah, the amount of fentanyl that's pouring in through our country is astounding and is lethal. Um, and, you know, when he says yesterday on Fox News Sunday with Brett Baer that they have operational control of the southern border, um, you know, he did not mention that most of that is being done by the state of Texas at the expense of the Texas state taxpayers. And I just, you know, he, he just doesn't seem serious about this and about the process and, and the 
and the magnet that his lack of enforcement by DHS at the southern border uh, is causing uh, for for illegal immigrants to come across. Dagan, this is the most frustrating thing for me. Is is you know it, leadership matters, and if you look at the things we accomplished in the Trump administration, both at DHS and at the Department of Justice, which runs the immigration courts, we had that system running effectively. We made sure that anyone that had a lawful asylum claim could make that claim, but that most people were turned away and sent back to their home countries. It is the exact opposite now. Most people are allowed to stay in some manner or means. And now on top of all that, they want to get rid of the Title 42 authorities to immediately deport people. It's just, it's, it's extraordinary and uh, it's really a shame. I'll just quote Stephen Miller, a former uh, senior advisor to President Trump, who tweeted this after the appearances from Alejandro Mayorkas. He said, watch inveterate liar Mayorkas on Sunday shows. He repeated one of his most appalling and galling lies, that the illegal families, unaccompanied children and single adults he's releasing en masse face future removal. They don't. Once released, they're on an honor system and they stay here. ICE removals are all at an all-time record low, now under 2,000 removals monthly, far less than the number freed daily. But those few who are being removed are almost all from the detained population, not those free and at large. Stephen goes on. But again, they, they, get, they think they can get away with lying to the American people. They do, and, and, he, and he's done it repeatedly, not only in front of Congress, but then on the Sunday shows. And, you know, the, we're not going to get control of this. And, and, you know, you talk about the misinformation board. I saw earlier this morning you were talking to Congressman Perry about that. You know, but this, this board, what they, you know, the first thing they should do is tell people uh, the truth, which is that the asylum system in the United States is broken, that it takes forever to get people through, that green cards are given out uh, six months into the process. And to your point is if you come in as a family unit or as an unaccompanied minor, uh, there's very little chance that you're ultimately going to be removed from the country because of ICE mm -hmm. operation. I want to say one thing, though. Yes. The men and women of ICE and the men and women of uh, border protection, they are such hard working and they want to do their jobs and they have been completely hamstrung by this administration and this secretary. And, you know, throwing this problem back on Congress when we had it effectively solved in the Trump administration right. is a cowardly act by this administration and, and the American people should hold them to account. They're fighting in court at the Supreme Court level to end the remain in Mexico policy. So at every turn, the mm -hmm. only thing that the, this administration cares about are the optics. They don't, they just don't want the American people to see what they're doing. Like the migrant flights in the middle of the night, that, that's what they care about the most, not the families of people who have died from fentanyl poisonings or the men and women at the border putting their lives on the line in the in the case of right. bishop evans losing that life but to quote jen Psaki, he didn't work for the federal government he worked for the state it's just right and then the state of texas is bearing a lot of this responsibility Dagan. Right. It, it's a shame that you know that the people at the border are having to fish people out of the rio grande river uh, to save their lives, and then you never see them returned uh, to their home countries. They're allowed right back into our country. Mm -hmm. Isn't it amazing that with all of this stuff that keeps happening over and over and over again, nothing happens to change it. Nothing changes if nothing changes. 
In other words, if you got trouble going on and you want to change that trouble, you want to get rid of it. Well, what's causing the trouble? When you get in a fight with your your spouse or a sibling or a boss or anybody, and it happens a lot, and it opens up its kind of an environment of hostility, that kind of stuff is going to happen. Your boss comes in and says, you got to stop that. We can't allow this to happen. Stop it. Well, how do you stop it? Something involved in it has got to change or the conflict is not going to change. Nothing changes if nothing changes at our government. At that level, it's even more predominant. We watch and listen to these people get up in there in uh, these committee hearings, in their testimony before Congress, and they just pontificate about this and that and throw darts at people they disagree with and how evil, how torrid you are. You can't be worth anything because look at what you say. Look at what you do. That doesn't accomplish anything. If you're a Republican, you know the Democrats sitting across from you and you are not going to agree on a lot of stuff politically, but that doesn't mean that you are at war with each other and one is the enemy and the other is the enemy of the other one. That shouldn't mean that. But we have allowed politics to create that environment where the number one thing everybody wants to do is hate. That's not a good place to live. It really isn't. And more people, more and more people are coming to the realization this stuff isn't moving well. It's like nobody's greased the bearings in the the boat that we're in. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> nobody's greased the wheel. Whatever keeps it keeps it going and running without a lot of disturbances. Nobody's doing that anymore. Everybody's coming in with a knife or a hatchet and they're going straight for the juggler vein or the back of the head. Destroy anybody that thinks differently from you. That is not the definition or even part of the process of living in a representative republic. We all have responsibilities. We do. And we're not responsible for everything because if we were, nobody would ever get anything done. We could never get anything done. But this vitriol, this anger, this hatred that drives all of this, it's just got to come to a head. And hopefully the head that it comes to is not going to be one of civil war. I talked to my brother last night late about the uh, Supreme Court uh, opinion that was leaked. And after I read him the portion that I read when we started the show today, he very calmly said to me, we are looking at civil war. We are looking at an imminent civil war in the nation. Now, to be quite honest with you, I think we've been there for a long time. I don't think we've been in a armed people going out in the streets, taking sides and start invasions and shooting and killing people and kidnap. I'm not talking about that. We haven't been there yet. But just watch what comes out of what we saw happen last night. There were demonstrators outside the Supreme Court building. 
There always are, both sides. That's part of the First Amendment. You don't have an amendment right that you can refer to that allows you to get together and demonstrate and those demonstrations turn violent. You don't have that right. That's not part of freedom of speech. You are guaranteed the right to assemble peaceably is the word in the First Amendment. You don't have a right to come to blows. You have a right to disagree. But you've got to peaceably assemble. Or, if you try it another way, you're violating the U.S. Constitution. Period. I don't care what you say or what you think. It is what it is. So we've got this this election coming up. Midterm election. Did you know... I guess the consensus from the left especially when we started really focusing on our immigration problem at the southern border. We, I'm not talking about the whole political structure. I'm talking about people like me and like you and people in Texas started looking at how bad this thing has gotten. We just assumed, or many of us just assumed, that Hispanic people in the United States They were all for just opening up the border and letting all their brethren come in here. And, of course, we said that's absolutely not true. Nearly two-thirds of Hispanic likely voters actually support closing the U.S.-Mexico border temporarily to combat a rise in associated crime. The poll conducted by the Trafalgar Group found that 66% of likely Hispanic voters support temporarily closing the southern border, and that's in response to the drug and human trafficking and illegal immigration that's going on. That number was the largest among the polled ethnic groups captured in a poll of 1,080 likely general election voters. It was conducted April 24th through 27th. Asian voters were the least likely to support a temporary, complete closure of the border. 89% of likely Republican voters supported a closure, as do roughly 52% of independents and about 22% of Democrats, according to the poll. Interesting. You would think Hispanics would be all in for it. You know why they're not, primarily? Most of the Hispanic immigrants that are here in the United States, they came here for work. They came here to get work, meaningful employment. And there are much better jobs here than they found in Mexico and Central American companies that they immigrated here from. I'm talking about the legal ones. They look at these people coming across the border now, not just the cartel folks, not just the human traffickers, sex traffickers, drug traffickers, not just those people, but they look at the other people They're coming to take a job away from one of those legal immigrants that came here the right way. Well, it's easy just to say, well, why don't you just not let those people work? Well, it doesn't work that way. If they get across the border, which most of them do, they just get in a community somewhere, and especially in the agricultural sector of our society, Those people are always looking for cheaper labor, people that will work hard, people that they don't have to 
do matching Social Security withholdings with. They just fly below the radar screen. The government never really knows what's going on. And employers are paying them with cash. The illegal immigrants that have come here in large part are taking jobs from Hispanic immigrants that came here and family members of those that came here legally. It stands to reason they don't like what's going on. There's really nothing going on. I mean, our government at the southern border, they're not doing anything that's worth a flip. You got to say that. I mean, you got to say that. That's the way it is. Well, hey, big show today. Had a lot going on. Thank you for being here. We're going to be back tomorrow, and I'm sure this Supreme Court thing is going to take on a life of its own. We're on top of it here at TNN Live. Have a great Tuesday. We'll see you tomorrow at 9 a.m. I look at you See the love there that's sleeping While my guitar gently weaves And I look at the floor And I see it needs My guitar gently weaves. I don't know why nobody told you how to unfold your love. I don't know why someone controlled you. They bought and sold you. Ooh, I look at the world and I see it still turn. While my guitar gently weaves With every mistake We will surely be learning We'll be learning While my guitar gently No one knows
Where am I getting 